0: You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Student Minister Sam Oldland. So if you looked around the room, and she was relieved when she saw that her life group leader was right on the other side of the room. Uh, She still hadn't talked to her since they'd had the awkward conversation about Sophie's boyfriend. He was getting annoyed all the time, wanting to hang out with her, uh, trying to stop her from going to church and to life group. Uh, And her life group leader was laying on as well, so she was trying to avoid her leader. She said hi to the minister, uh, but she kept walking, didn't slow down as she went past. She was still hurt that even though all of her mates uh, were serving in all kinds of different ways, playing in the band... Uh, leading the Sunday school. He hadn't asked her to do anything. It made her feel like she somehow wasn't as good of a Christian as them or wasn't as worthy or valuable as them. What did they have that she didn't have? So she walked into the church, sat down with her friends, feeling tired from a long day at work of standing on her feet, getting pushed around by her bully boss. You and I, we might not like to admit it, but conflict is part of our lives every day. and We don't leave it at the door when we get to church. As Christians, you and I are no different to anyone else in that we experience conflict. But you know what? As Christians, we should be different to everyone else in how we respond to conflict. We should be different, shouldn't we? We should do conflict in a way that glorifies God, for Christians, that's what our lives are for. That's what we're about. So, for the next four weeks in our Peacemakers series, we're going to be thinking about how to do conflict well. Uh, we're going to think about tonight how we glorify God in conflict, and next week how I see myself in conflict, uh, then about others that I'm in conflict with, uh, and finally about the reconciliation that God makes with us and so we can make with each other. Uh, And Tonight we're starting with the focus on God, uh, which I guess is appropriate because we're at church, Uh, and we've got an awesome passage to help us do that, uh, Psalm 37. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through those verses of Psalm 37, considering how it calls us to live, and then we'll apply those lessons, particularly as we think about conflict. So Psalm 37 uh, is what's called a wisdom psalm. You might know in the Bible there's lots of different documents with lots of different genres. Uh, One of those genres is called wisdom. We don't really have the same genre anymore in our literature. Maybe the closest thing we've got is uh, something like self-help books or online, like life hacks, that kind of stuff. It's about helping us to do life well, to be smart at doing life. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs in the Bible, that's the clearest example we've got of wisdom these kind of pithy sayings about how to do life well and wisdom, it's not just about being smart, it's about having the right character and having the right God as well, wisdom urges people to live well by honouring and trusting God according to wisdom, that's how you live well, that's how you become a good employee, that's how you become a good spouse a good friend, a good manager of your money by honouring God And this psalm, Psalm 37, is in this wisdom genre. It's teaching us how to live well by honouring God. So to help us understand, I um, made these when I should have been writing essays, so I hope it's worth it. I'm a bit of a visual learner, so this helps me at least. One of the distinctive features of the wisdom genre is it makes this really sharp contrast between two types of people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the light and the dark side. It's a Star Wars kind of theology in the wisdom genre. Wisdom tells us about these two types of people and what they're like, and tells us about what their destiny is, what their future is. So the righteous and the wicked and what their destiny is. And if we want to understand what Psalm 37 teaches us, For conflict in our lives, we need to understand what it says about these two kinds of people. So grab the Bible in front of you if you don't have it yet, um, the Psalms on page 449, uh, and I'll I'll kind of draw together some strands from that for us. So he starts in verse 1, he says, "'Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass they will soon wither, like green plants they will soon die away.'" So there's this one type of person, the evil person, and they do wrong. Like the grass, they will wither, they will die away. But then there's the other kind of person. You can see it in verse 3. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So the other kind of person trusts in the Lord and they enjoy blessings from God. And if you read through the whole psalm, you'll see it's just more and more about these two types of people. There's that really strong distinction all the way through. So we can see, we can gather what the psalm says about each of these kinds of people uh, and about their destinies. So the psalm writer, he begins by telling us what not to do. He says, do not fret. He warns us against fretting. And he repeats this command three times in the psalm, so we know it's important. And what does fretting lead to? Well, if you look at verse 8 in front of you there, he says, Do not fret, it leads only to evil. And the destiny of those who do evil in this psalm is the same as the destiny of those who do evil in all of the wisdom genre. The next verse there in verse 9, they'll be destroyed. The destiny of those who do evil is destruction. So fretting leads to doing evil, and doing evil leads to destruction. I will, Kirk, yes. That's a great question. Uh, But that's not the only kind of person in the psalm, is it? In verse 3, we have a very different story. He says, trust in the Lord. He wants us to be trusting. And he says that here, and he says it in verse 5 as well. And there's lots of other language that he uses uh, to to help us see this. So he says, take delight in the Lord, commit your ways to him, be still before him, wait patiently for him, hope in the Lord. It's all expressing the same idea. The main command of this psalm uh, is to trust in God. And those who trust in the Lord, instead of doing evil, they do good. It's in verse 3 there. The psalm later on calls these people upright, blameless, righteous, faithful. Those who trust in the Lord, they do good. And the future of these people, rather than destruction, is blessing. You can see it all through the reading we had there. They will dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. God will give them the desires of their hearts. He will vindicate them. They will inherit the land. There's a whole range of blessings described for these people. And so, from Psalm 37, we're presented with these two very different pictures, this contrast of two attitudes and actions and destinies. It's not hard for us to see which way the psalmist is calling us to live. Psalm 37 calls us to trust God and to not fret. But if, if you're like me, or apparently like Kirk, the first question you might ask is, what does that mean, to not fret? What is fretting? What's this psalm calling us to avoid? Well, with this, this kind of sharp contrasting he's got going on, I think he's presenting fretting as the opposite of trusting God. Fretting is worrying without trusting. Fretting is worrying without trusting. Whenever I've got a a flight to catch, on the morning of that flight, there's always this kind of little subtle anxiety that just sits in my gut. Maybe you can identify with this. As I pack my bag, print off my ticket, drive to the airport, there's just this little kind of something that's niggling away there. I'll check my flight details a couple of times online. I'll check my watch more than normal, and that anxiety—it doesn't really go away until I've checked my bags in. I've got my boarding pass. I'm sitting down in the lounge. I'm not on the flight yet, but I'm secure. I know we'll be. I'm safe. I don't have to fret. I fret when I'm anxious or unsure. In a, in a job interview, everyone in the room is probably a little bit nervous, right? But the three people on one side of the desk have a fundamentally different attitude to the one person on the other side, don't they? Because they know they're going to walk out of the room with a job. They don't have to fret. But for the person on the other side, she's trying to convince them to give her a job. She has no assurance, no certainty. Fretting is worrying without trusting if I don't trust that God is powerful and cares for me then when I lose my job and I'm not sure how I'm going to provide for my kids or make my rent payments then I fret because I don't know what will happen I have no way of knowing if it will be okay and of course all of us will be concerned in a situation like that trusting God doesn't just mean pretending everything is great all the time But but fretting is is deeper and reflects a lack of trust. When my wife, Ronnie, and I have an argument, I don't fear that she's suddenly going to decide to walk out the door and leave me. The vows we made to each other, the character that I know she has, means I can trust her to remain committed to me. I don't need to fret when we have conflict. And yet the trust I can have in God Is even deeper, even greater, isn't it? Human relationships can fail. But I can trust God's character and God's promises absolutely. Fretting is worrying without trusting. The Hebrew word for it means to burn. It's like we say burning with anger or burning with jealousy, burning with embarrassment. It's intense and it's out of control and it's consuming. And we should say as well more and more in our culture that clinical anxiety is a a huge problem that many people face and it's very complex. As, As we talk about fretting and you suffer from anxiety, please don't hear me say that you should just trust God and snap out of it. Of course, it's more complex than that. But for all of us, if we can't trust God, if we worry without the security of knowing His goodness and His love for us... Then it leads to fretting, which, according to Psalm 37, is consuming and destructive. So the psalm writer says fretting leads to evil. It also says that fretting leads to doing wrong by others, leads to anger and wrath. If you find yourself in conflict, constantly angry, constantly envious, doing wrong by other people then it seems like a lack of trust in God is probably part of the problem. So I think when he says, trust God, and he says, do not fret, he's really saying the same thing from two different angles. If we trust God, we don't fret. Trust God and enjoy God's blessing. Do not fret, because fretting leads to evil and leads to destruction. But what what can we do with this as we think about glorifying God in conflict? How can we glorify God in conflict? There's any number of things you could say, of course, but I don't think we could say anything better than what this psalm teaches us. We can glorify God in conflict by trusting Him. And we can trust God because He's sovereign and because He is good. This psalm shows us that God is sovereign. That that word, it's a little bit Bible jargony, but it means he is absolutely powerful. He is king, reigning over the universe and over each of our lives. He watches over the great events of history and over events as small as a sparrow falling from a tree. Nothing happens without him knowing about it. Nothing happens outside of his control. Like we sang before, he has no rival, he has no equal. God is sovereign. And God is sovereign over every conflict in each of our lives. When Sophie's frustrated at her mum or at her life group leader, God is sovereignly over each of those situations, each of those conflicts in her life. Nothing is out of his sight and it's really important to me that God is sovereign because it means I don't have to fear that injustice will go unpunished. If I'm wronged and no one knows about it, then I feel like I have to bring justice, right? I have to punish them for what they've done to me. But because God is sovereign, he sees every wrong and I can trust him to judge. And this happens to some of the writer's writers of the psalms they're oppressed and wronged by their enemies but instead of trying to get back at them instead of trying to punish them for what they've done the psalm writers they call out to god to bring justice they know that he is sovereign he is the one who brings justice not them and not us of course god is also sovereign when i'm the one who's doing wrong When I manipulate or exploit or bully someone, I never get away with it. It never goes unseen. If you have a relationship of conflict in your life and you're doing wrong by someone, maybe a child or a friend, a spouse, know that nothing happens in secret. God sees you. For all of us, think about a conflict in your life, maybe one that's been on your mind through our series so far, and know that God is sovereign there. He is in control. He sees everything. But you know what? If God is only sovereign, it's kind of cruel, isn't it? Is God like a parent who watches... Their child getting bullied or bullying another child and just watches? No, because God is also good and He loves you. God's sovereign power is always wielded with perfect love. David, who wrote this Psalm 37, he also wrote Psalm 62. And there he says, One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. God's not only over us, he's also for us. God knew each of us and loved us before the foundation of the world. He will love each of us into eternity. And he guides each of us through life like a perfectly loving and caring parent, gently guiding their child. That doesn't mean that God will insulate us from all suffering. Rather, it means God will be with us in suffering and he will use it for his glory. Romans tells us that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. In every trial, every conflict, God is shaping us, making us more like Jesus and giving us opportunities to bring him glory. In conflict, God teaches us to rely on him. He uses conflict to reveal our sin and convict us of how we need to change. He uses conflict to develop character in us and conform us to the image of Christ, which is the great trajectory of our lives. If, if you're a parent, maybe you can identify with this as you lead your kids. When, when they face obstacles, challenges which seem difficult to them, sometimes you can love them best by empowering them to overcome a challenge rather than just taking it away. A child who never faces any challenges never learns. They never develop resilience and their parents haven't loved them well. Likewise, God, in his love for us, guides us through conflict, not away from it, to make us more like Christ and bring him glory. But but if you're in deep, distressing conflict now, The kind of conflict that tempts you to lose trust in God, that tempts you to fret. It must be hard for you to hear that God is using it for his glory and he's leaving you in it because he loves you. If you have a boss that makes you anxious to get in the car every morning or you're in a marriage that isn't what you thought it would be, that's hard. That's really hard. The temptation to fret To worry without trusting God must be intense. But I want you to know that this is still true. God is still sovereign. He's still good. He still loves you. And he's using the conflict that you're in to demonstrate his love for you and make you more like Jesus. So you can trust him no matter the conflict. If you believe that God is watching over you with perfect love and unlimited power, you will be able to serve him faithfully as a peacemaker, even in the most difficult conflict. And that glorifies God. Here's a few questions that you could ask about a conflict in your life uh, or about a conflict that's happened in your life in the past. How is God using this conflict to grow me? Like a parent helping their child overcome a challenge, how is God changing me, making me more like Jesus through this conflict? What difference does it make that God is sovereign and God is good? If God is over over me and for me in this, how might that change the way I behave in this conflict? Has fretting led me to envy, to do wrong by someone, or to anger? Does my behaviour, when I'm in conflict, reflect deep trust in God? Or does it reflect fretting, a lack of trust? And we need to look at our hearts and think about conflict, because it matters. The way we behave in conflict matters a lot, that's when our guard is down, right? That's when the mask comes off. That's when what's inside is really shown. In those those guarded, unguarded, raw moments, are we people whose lives have been transformed by the love and power of God? Or are we just like everyone else, fretting because we have no one to trust in other than ourselves? Was Sophie really any different to someone who wasn't a Christian. When you're tempted to fret, to worry without trusting God, remember this, preach this to yourself when you find yourself fretting. God is sovereign, God is good. So you can overlook a wrong because God is sovereign, God is good. You can restrain your anger because God is sovereign. God is good. You can resist the temptation to hurt someone back for hurting you because God is sovereign. God is good. You can forgive because God is sovereign. God is good. You can glorify God in conflict because he deserves it. Let me pray that we would do that. Father, thank you that you are sovereign and you are good over every one of us and over every relationship and conflict in our lives. Help us to be people who trust you, who bring you glory by doing it. Amen.